Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Former President Trump responds to additional charges in the classified documents case. How do the new charges affect his presidential run? Almost all Republican presidential candidates speaking in Iowa tonight. The Hawkeye State is crucial to candidates as it will hold the first GOP caucus of the 2024 presidential race. New emails from Facebook shedding light on the Biden administration's efforts to censor content. A social media company is saying it faced pressure over content related to the COVID-19 pandemic. Can Biden sell the economy? President Biden today takes his Bidenomics message to Maine and reacts to Republicans' impeachment threats. And an Alabama woman who faked her own kidnapping has been arrested. She faces two charges and possible jail time. Did former President Trump have security tapes deleted? He says he did nothing wrong. NTD's legal correspondent Arlene Richards has more on Trump's response to the new charges. I don't think they think that the tapes were even changed. These were my tapes that we gave to them. Former President Trump in an interview on The John Frederick Show responding to new charges added to his indictment in the classified documents case. In an updated indictment on Thursday, prosecutors accused Trump of one additional count of willful retention of national defense information and two additional obstruction counts. Prosecutors say Trump asked a staffer, Mar-a-Lago property manager Carlos de Oliveira, to delete camera footage at his Florida estate. This comes as they also added de Oliveira as a third defendant and brought new charges against valet Walt Nelta. Trump told Federicks that he's not sure he even had to turn over the tapes. He said he thinks prosecutors are trying to intimidate people. So that people go out and make up lies about me because I did nothing wrong. Some Republicans and Democrats reacted to the new charges. I've always been concerned. I had dual secrets since I was 21 years old, uh, top secrets and you name it. And we should protect, protect them and... I mean, this is not something to take lightly. Republican Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy questioned why President Biden hasn't been charged. When he was a senator, he took a document. How many years is that and there's been no prosecution? How can you be so quick to judge President Trump in a short time period and you've had all this other, but you can't deal with that? I am not a lawyer, but if you are deleting evidence, it's because you know you're committing a crime. Well, the evidence uh, was already strong in the original indictment, uh, but in this superseding indictment now, you just see how much more evidence the special counsel has. Trump said despite the new charges, he is still leading in the polls, and he has no plans to step out of the race. But he had some advice for top contender Governor Ron DeSantis. I think he has to get out for the good of the party. Trump is scheduled to go to trial in May 2024 in Florida, at which point the Republican nomination may already be decided. Arlene Richards, NTD News. Thirteen Republican presidential candidates all speaking in Iowa tonight. The Lincoln Dinner is one of the GOP's largest annual fundraisers. Here are the details. Almost all declared major candidates of the 2024 Republican presidential primary are in Iowa on Friday. They're scheduled to speak at the Lincoln Dinner, a Republican fundraising event in Des Moines. 
Florida Governor Ron DeSantis made a campaign stop in Albia, Iowa on Friday before heading to the state's capital. Iowa holds the first primary election in the nation. It's considered a key state for the candidates, hoping that they can surpass Trump's strong lead in polling. South Carolina Senator Tim Scott held a town hall in the Hawkeye State on Thursday. On Friday night, 13 Republican candidates each have exactly 10 minutes to address a crowd of around 1,200 people. To ensure compliance with the strict 10-minute rule, microphones will be deactivated after 10 minutes. Only former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie will be absent from the lineup. He's instead focusing his efforts on New Hampshire voters. Tickets to attend the event, which range in price from $150 to more than $1,000 per person, are sold out. Former U.N. Ambassador and South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley is the first speaker. DeSantis is scheduled to be third. Former President Trump is the last speaker of the night. DeSantis is in the middle of rebooting his campaign. A standard reboot usually includes three steps, cutting expenses and slashing staff, reshuffled leadership, and a shift in focus to more grassroots, smaller events in early primary states. DeSantis is currently doing all three of those things. And the governor is reportedly set to unveil his economic policy in New Hampshire on Monday. The policy is expected to be heavily focused on strategically decoupling the American economy from China and the globalist elites that have been wreaking havoc on the American dream. The speech is set to be the governor's third major policy announcement. In other election news, presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. says the Biden administration denied his request for Secret Service protection. In a Twitter statement, Kennedy cited the assassination of his father, Robert F. Kennedy, during his 1968 campaign. He said since then, candidates for president have been provided Secret Service protection, but not for him. He explained that the turnaround time for filing a request is usually 14 days, but after more than 80 days of no response, he got a denial. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas said the protection is not warranted. Kennedy cited a 67-page report from a protection firm which detailed different types of death threats and security risks for him. And newly released emails appear to confirm that Facebook censored content about COVID-19 because of pressure from the Biden administration. This sheds more light on the White House's censorship campaign over the pandemic. Chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, Jim Jordan, released emails the panel obtained from Facebook. They confirmed that Facebook censored content about the origins of COVID-19 due to pressure from the White House. In one of the emails, Nick Clegg, Facebook's head of global affairs, asked colleagues in July 2021 why Facebook was removing, rather than demoting or labeling, claims that COVID is man-made. Another Facebook employee wrote, because we were under pressure from the administration and others to do more. According to the employee, Facebook removed multiple claims because fact-checkers labeled them false, even though the social media company didn't assess the posts as causing harm. In another message, a Facebook employee said that Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, quote, wants us to remove true information about side effects if the user does not provide complete information about whether the side effect is rare and treatable. Jordan said in a statement that the documents reveal Facebook bowed to the Biden White House's pressure to remove posts. Documents in recent lawsuits, such as Missouri versus Biden, have shown that the Biden administration repeatedly urged social media companies to censor content about the pandemic. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. 
And two major moves by the Biden administration today. First, to improve the gas efficiency of cars, including passenger cars and trucks. It wants to raise the standard for new vehicles 18 percent by the 2032 model year. It says this would save vehicle owners over $1,000 in lifetime fuel costs while increasing average vehicle costs by over $900. There will be a comment period before the rules get finalized. And President Biden also ordered a historic change to how sexual assault cases are prosecuted in the military today. It transfers key decisions outside the military chain of command. An independent review commission recommended the change two years ago. It's the most significant change of the military justice system since 1950s. The order will also apply to cases of domestic violence, child abuse and murder, among other serious crimes. It's set to take effect by the end of the year. Amid all this, President Biden is actually in Maine for another day on the road selling the economy. He's touting Bidenomics amid pushback from Republicans. NTD's Iris Tao has more from the White House. President Biden traveled to Maine today to sell his Bidenomics agenda to blue-collar voters, especially in this particular congressional district that he lost to Donald Trump in 2020. Bidenomics is just another way of saying restoring the American dream. We've created over 13 million new jobs. During his visit today, Biden signed a new executive order aimed at boosting manufacturing of domestic inventions. Which means more jobs. And he touted the latest economic data that showed the economy grew faster than expected. Wages are up. But despite the administration's efforts to try to promote Bidenomics across the country, recent polls show that only 3 in 10 Americans believe that the economy is good. And Joshua Morris, a Republican state representative from Maine, told the Associated Press that, quote, Bidenomics is hurting working people in my district. He should be apologizing to us while he's here, not bragging. Meanwhile, President Biden today defended himself by taking aim at congressional Republicans. The Washington Post suggested Republicans may have to find something else to criticize me for. Now that inflation is coming down, maybe they'll decide to impeach me because it's coming down. I don't know. I love that one. And President Biden has been traveling weekly to talk about his Bidenomics agenda. But next week, he's going to take a break by taking a week-long vacation in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, before coming back here next Sunday. Reporting from the White House, Iris Tao, NTD News. And Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell plans to serve for the rest of the current congressional session in his role as the GOP leader. McConnell's office made the announcement today, two days after he froze for about 30 seconds during a news conference. McConnell was back to work Thursday, but the 81-year-old has faced scrutiny over his health this year, starting in March when he suffered a concussion and broken ribs after falling at a Washington hotel. McConnell has led the Senate GOP for the past 16 years and is the longest-serving Senate party leader ever. Friday's statement does not address McConnell's plans in the next Congress, which begins in 2025. And Congress leaves D.C. today, leaving pressing tasks in limbo. Partisan disputes over spending are raising the likelihood of a government shutdown in October. NTD's Melina Wisecup reports. 
It's that time of year again where partisan disputes over spending are on full display here. While both the House and the Senate have passed the National Defense Authorization Act, the versions are a bit different. Those differences need to be reconciled. The main differences here are cultural ones in the House side. They restricted funding for cultural issues like abortion, transgender care, diversity programs. The vast differences are even more so in the government funding bills. And what's compounding that problem is the fact that there are some in the GOP who are fiercely demanding spending cuts. Even some, like Congressman Bob Good, are willing to risk a government shutdown to meet those demands. We should not fear a government shutdown. Most of what we do up here is bad anyway. Most of what we do up here hurts the American people. And here again, they want to strip funding for culture issues. Speaker McCarthy has encouraged House appropriators to write their spending bills under the levels agreed upon in the debt ceiling deal, but Senate appropriators have written their appropriations bills at much higher levels, setting up this collision course. Look, he is the leader of the Senate. I'm the leader of the House. I don't want government to shut down. I want to find that we can find common ground. Instead of just throwing out partisan bills that have no chance, no chance of passing. We've seen this pretty regularly over the past couple of years, and what could happen is the Congress passes a temporary funding bill, but in this case, they're just spending money to kick the can down the road and deal with these disagreements later. Now, another issue here is that there are some Republicans who routinely vote against these type of temporary funding bills. So in this case, if McCarthy is to take this path, he might have to rely on some Democrat votes. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskup, NTD News. New details on the Alabama woman who faked her own kidnapping. Police arrested Carly Russell on Friday and she's now out on bond. She faces two charges, false police reporting and false reporting of an incident. Both are misdemeanors, each carrying up to a year in jail. On July 13th, Russell called police to report she saw a toddler on the side of the road. When police showed up, she wasn't there and there was no toddler. She reappeared two days later and said she had been abducted, but she later admitted that it was a hoax. Coming up, the extreme heat sweeping across the nation is set to break records in Washington, D.C. Local officials are urging people to stay indoors. And we hear from a border expert who's spoken with thousands of migrants at the southern border about the issues that bring them there and other insights after the break. day in years. The nation's capital today placed under an excessive heat warning as record-breaking temperatures continue to swelter the region. NTD's Sam Wong has more. The swampy heat wave torching much of the U.S. this summer is settling here in Washington, D.C. Right now, the ground is sizzling and the humidity isn't helping much either. As of this very moment, the temperature is at 95 degrees Fahrenheit, but it actually feels much hotter. Local officials said that the heat index is expected to break triple digits later today. Uh, it's very, very hot, very, very hot and very wet. Business is very slow because people are scared to come outside. I feel a little distressed and uh, I don't think anybody should be out here right now. I, I wear the hat, keep the sun off me and I'm trying to stay in the air conditioning, you know, mostly. The extreme weather is forcing outdoors people to get into the shade, but a few unrattled by the heat are spotted jogging and riding under the sun. 
July is usually the peak season for tourism out here in D.C., but right now at the National Mall, if you look around me, there's very few people scattered here and there, which is very unusual for this time of year. On Wednesday, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser declared a hot weather emergency. Around 150 million Americans across the country are under similar warnings, sweeping west from the coast all the way to Kansas and dipping down into Louisiana. New York City and Philadelphia are also under heat advisories. People are urged to watch out for signs of heat-related illnesses as it could be fatal under high temperature and extreme humidity. Forecasters in D.C. predicted that the heat index could top 110 through Saturday, marking a new record since 2016. For those who need to get away from the broiling sun, cooling centers and other facilities are available across D.C. And to catch a ride there, you can request free transportation by dialing 311. The National Weather Service is urging people to stay indoors, check up on neighbors and families, and most importantly, drink plenty of water. Reporting from Washington, D.C., Sam Wong, NTD News. And staying in D.C., where earlier this week, a House subcommittee heard testimony from witnesses and experts on the state of the border. This financial year, Border Patrol has apprehended a record number of terror watch list suspects entering the country. Among those giving testimony at the hearing was Todd Benzman, Senior National Security Fellow at the Center for Immigration Studies. He also spoke with me earlier today. Todd, thanks so much for coming on. Border Patrol has now apprehended a record number of terror watch list suspects. What kinds of people are we talking about here and how did we get here? Right. Well, you have to remember that more than 40% of all illegal aliens crossing our southern border are from countries other than Mexico or Central America. The entire world is on their way here. Uh, everybody has heard the siren call of our open borders and our policies that are letting pretty much everybody in. Uh, just a month or so ago, I was in Matamoros in Mexico, and my entire hotel was filled with Kyrgyzstanis and Dagestanis. Everybody's coming, and so it's inevitable that some of them are gonna be known to our uh, intelligence agencies as potential terrorists, and that's who's coming. And now you testified before the House this week and said that the increase in illegal immigration is transforming American society and that children are being affected the most. Could you expand on that? We rarely hear about the fact that uh, most of the uh, people that are coming across are in family groups or unaccompanied minors, and they have to go to school in the United States. And now they have to take standardized tests, uh, overcrowding, uh, the purchase of uh, portable classrooms, uh, security issues, gang problems. And these are starting to hit Americans. It's a pocketbook issue. It's a public safety issue. And it's a quality of education issue throughout the interior of the United States. I just wanted to get that on the record uh, in the Congress. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you also brought up mass asylum fraud at the, at the border and other legal loopholes that people are using to get into the country. You spent a lot of time down at the border. Could you tell us what you've seen in that sense? Right. Well, uh, to, to get asylum, uh, to qualify for asylum in this country, you have to be able to show that you have been per politically persecuted by the government of your home country. But the vast majority of people coming across uh, are by uh, indication from my interviews with thousands of them are economic migrants are coming here to work. They're not fleeing something, they're just coming to and for something in the United States. That's not an eligible grounds for asylum. 
And a lot of the immigrants that I talk to are very well aware that they have to come up with some kind of story. Uh, and they all know that nobody's going to check it. It's not checkable. But when you catch them down there before they've been lawyered up, as I do, uh, they'll just tell you, yeah, we're, I, you know, I can make $30 a month in Colombia doing my job, but in the U.S. I'll make 150 So, you know, why wouldn't I do that? That is not uh, asylum. That is something entirely different. But they're going to claim asylum, and they're going to be lying about it. Right. Now, you said in the same hearing that 100% of crimes committed by illegal immigrants are avoidable, which I thought was very interesting. But that's in response to some studies that show that illegal immigrants commit fewer crimes than American citizens. Could you speak to that? That's right. I took heat for that, but I'm happy to do it. I'm just saying every crime by an illegal immigrant is a crime that was unnecessary, that was preventable. And you can't say the same thing for American citizen crime, at least not in the context of an apparatus that's deporting, that could deport them. Okay, now one argument that was brought up is that it's not possible to stop illegal immigrants from crossing our borders. But you've said that it is, and that illegal immigrants actually pay close attention to the decisions that our government's making on the border. What kinds of policies can be put in place to prevent the influx, do you think? Well, we saw definitive ev evidence during the Trump administration, during the Trump years, that policies do play a critical factor in the decision-making processes of immigrants while they're still home. Will the money that I pay get me into the country and get me into stay? If the answer is no, I'm not dropping the cash. I'm not spending that money on smugglers. I'm staying home. And they did. In huge numbers, uh, the administration of Trump uh, uh, had about 20 or 30,000 apprehensions a month. The very next month, after Biden took office and got rid of those policies, remain in Mexico, Title 42, uh, they opened up all kinds of exemptions. The numbers went to 200,000 a month and never looked back. Uh, All-time records, every record in the books broken because the immigrants are smart. They pay attention to policy, and they ask themselves, will my money pay off? It's that simple. All right. Thank you so much, Todd Benzman, Senior National Security Fellow at the Center for Immigration Studies. Really appreciate your insights. Coming up, a lawsuit over free speech on college campuses. A university in Illinois settles with a conservative student who claimed the school censored her viewpoints. And should state governments be allowed to intervene in local school districts? NTD hears from a board trustee to find out after the break. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. Former President Trump responds to new charges against him in the classified documents case, saying he did nothing wrong. The Justice Department is accusing Trump of deleting security footage at his Mar-a-Lago estate. Newly released emails appear to confirm that Facebook censored content about COVID-19 because of pressure from the Biden administration. Employees said they removed posts claiming that the virus was man-made because the White House wanted them to, quote, do more. 
Carly Russell, the Alabama woman who faked her own kidnapping, was arrested today and is now out on bond. She faces two charges, false police reporting and false reporting of an incident. Both are misdemeanors, each carrying up to a year in jail. In Illinois, a public university has reached a settlement with a former student who claimed the school silenced her for expressing conservative views. Here's what the student told Fox News in a June interview. I participated in classroom discussions in which we discuss contentious issues such as race relations or religion um, and for therapists, the postmodern theoretical framework. And so these were discussed within the classroom setting. And so I was alarmed when I had received three no contact orders that prevented me from having direct or indirect communication with um, these three students. Um, essentially, they were restraining orders that um, applied to on and off campus. Maggie DeYoung was a graduate student at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville. She said the school issued a no-contact order on her after three students complained about her social media posts on issues such as abortions and the police. The order prohibited her from fully participating in class discussions. As part of the settlement, the university will pay DeYoung $80,000 and three professors at the school will undergo First Amendment training. The university said in a statement to NTD that it is, quote, unequivocally committed to protecting First Amendment rights and does not have policies that restrict free speech nor support censorship. The Essential Church is a new documentary about three pastors who defied COVID-19 lockdowns and reopened their churches amid the pandemic. That was at the time when the government allowed George Floyd protesters to meet en masse but in many places required churches to stop in-person services. NTD's Chris Beers spoke with Jenna Ellis, the attorney who represented Pastor John MacArthur, who's featured in the film. Jenna Ellis, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Chris. Always great to join you. Jenna, this Essential Church movie is now in theaters. What's it about? Yeah, this is a feature-length documentary that explains the role of church in civil society, and it documents the pastors that were pushing back against the COVID tyranny mandates from the state in the height of the pandemic in 2020 to keep churches open. And so this not only documents a pastor John MacArthur and Grace Community Church uh, pushing back against Gavin Newsom in L.A. County, but also several pastors out in uh, Canada, in Alberta, pushing back against the regime there who actually went to jail for their faith. So this also puts in context uh, what the church has always fought against with the state trying to encroach on the church's jurisdiction and saying, no, Christ is the head of the church, not the state. And you played a role in the film as Pastor John MacArthur's attorney. What was that like? Yeah, I was very blessed to uh, be able to represent Pastor John MacArthur and Grace Community Church uh, in California in this lawsuit. And so part of the film also uh, shows what we went through in terms of our lawsuit and really vindicating the First Amendment constitutionally protected right of churches to be treated as essential and not with uh, any more discrimination than any other essential businesses in the state. And so we won an overwhelming victory, an $800,000 settlement against Gavin Newsom, the state of California and Los Angeles County. And um, in total with the cases that I represented my colleagues with the Thomas More Society, a great nonprofit, the state of California ended up having to pay out over three and a half million dollars in settlement, which I don't think that uh, their taxpayers would like very much. Sure. Now. The film kind of touches on this, but 
What role does the church play in protecting civil liberties in America? The, the church plays an essential role, and uh, that's actually part of the film where, uh, in the very beginning, what is the church and the definition of the church? And we know that the civil government plays a role in restraining evil in society, but the church also plays an important role ministering to people uh, in the community and making sure that uh, people can attend church, be part of the church, understand the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this film actually goes into why church is essential. And I think for everyone seeing it, you're going to come away with a better understanding that church isn't just a building. It's actually something that is an institution that God himself has ordained and why the myth of a separation between church and state isn't what the left would say. It's actually a different jurisdiction under God's authority. And Jenna, what do you most hope viewers would take away from this film? Well, as Pastor John MacArthur likes to say, uh, he wanted to tell the story of why church is essential, how we stood up during the pandemic, but also that this was just one application of the church's essential nature in the whole scope of world history and how the faithful Christians have always stood up in their time. So he also would say he hopes that pastors who closed their doors actually watch this and feel guilty for not standing up uh, and that they would see that when the next fight comes, they would have more courage to stand up. So I think Christians will be encouraged and people who maybe disagree with that or who aren't Christians will go and see this movie and understand why the church is essential. Jenna Ellis, thank you. Thanks so much. And you can go to EssentialChurchMovie.com. That's our website, and it's in theaters starting today. Thanks. The Essential Church premieres today in select theaters nationwide. Once again, for tickets, you can visit EssentialChurchMovie.com. How much control should parents and local leaders have over education? And should the state have overarching control? This is an important topic as a Southern California school board says it was dissatisfied with what the state is teaching children. NTD's David Lamb speaks with a Temecula Valley School Board trustee. All in favor say aye. 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 Earlier this year, several board members with the Temecula Valley Unified School District rejected a state-approved curriculum, saying it's not age-appropriate for fourth graders. Newsom threatened to fine the district $1.5 million if it didn't approve the curriculum. Is there legal grounds for this? Well, the state superintendent, Tony Thurman, told reporters that there is a bill that would allow California to send books and fine the district over the issue if passed. AB 1078 would actually establish this process and that bill is being heard in the legislature and it does have an urgency clause. And so um, we're waiting to see what happens uh, with that bill. Um, I would just say that we are currently investigating uh, the Temecula Valley School District. Temecula Valley Board President Joseph Komrowski and school trustee Jen Wiersma said the school ended up adopting the curriculum with modifications to avoid a lawsuit. But at the end of the day, I think he really felt strongly that we wanted to be kept out of litigation and that we wanted to modify the curriculum. And that's the beauty of local control. So what we did is we passed, we adopted that four to zero. Part of the curriculum covers the civil rights movement, mentioning groups and people who advocated for gay rights. Board members said they felt the topics were unsuitable for young children. Members also said parents had not been adequately consulted about the curriculum.
Wiersma believes the statewide curriculum could improve by expanding its offerings and letting school boards maintain deciding when things are age appropriate. There are only four or five that California has stamped as adopted, and I would love to see a more classical leaning with history. She hopes other school districts could also look into local control and have parents involved while teachers rewrite some aspects. In Santa Clara, California, David Lamb, NTD News. And staying in California, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, or NAACP, in Oakland published a letter sounding the alarm over rising crime in that city. Earlier today, I spoke with journalist, documentary filmmaker, and Oakland resident Leighton Woodhouse for his perspective on the situation. Leighton, thanks so much for joining us. Oakland's NAACP is calling on local officials to declare a state of emergency around crime. You've covered this area in depth. How would you describe the state of affairs there? Uh, it's crazy, and it's getting crazier. Um, you may have heard this story that this week there was a naked woman um, who stepped out of her car on the freeway on the Oakland side of the Bay Bridge and started just shooting at cars. Um, you know, obviously suffering some kind of psychotic break or something. Um, but, you know, that was pretty wild, even by um, by Bay Area standards. But also another viral video that went around this week was of a car jacking up on Skyline Boulevard, which is really the, kind of the nice part of town. It's like where people go to walk their dogs on nature trails in the Redwoods. Um, you know, car pulls over, blocks the, the path and gets out with a gun and just at 8 a.m. in the morning and just tries to, to jack this person's car at gunpoint. Um, there have been over 8,000 car break-ins in Oakland just so far this year, which is a 50% increase over last year. Um, Oakland has the second worst 911 pickup time in the state. People feel very insecure. Um, crime is rampant. It's, it's pretty crazy. That's so incredible. Now, I want to look at the, the where this all started. You know, the NAACP is blaming failed leadership, including the movement to defund the police, anti-police rhetoric, as well as the district attorney for the increase in crime. From your perspective, how accurate is that? Well, last night there was a town hall that I attended with the district attorney, the attorney who rarely does public appearances, um, and it was absolutely packed, standing room only, um, and. Uh, and, you know, she doesn't see her job as as uh, preventing crime. She said that straight up, that the DA doesn't have a role in preventing crime. And um, that's a problem because that's not the way that traditional DAs look at this stuff. There were also laws that were passed. For example, there was a law passed in, in statewide in California, which makes it more likely that a police officer who shoots somebody, um, who makes who shoots somebody in error, um, uh, you know, shoots somebody innocent, some somebody unarmed, which happens on the job um, sometimes as a, as a good faith accident, like it look they, the officer thinks that somebody's holding a gun or whatever, um, it's more likely that that officer will end up in prison. And whatever you think about the fairness of that law, the consequence has been that officers don't want to end up in prison, so they have been transferring out of high crime cities and going to low crime suburban areas. So Oakland, along with many other cities, has had a crisis in recruitment and retain retaining of cops. And, and yet, in some sense, people may feel that they, they shouldn't really be speaking out against it. I, I noticed that the NAACP is urging 
African-Americans, white, Asian, and Latino communities to speak out against crime. And, and they say that people shouldn't be shamed into silence. How much do you think this is at play? I think that it's, I think that that has been the case in the past. I think that is becoming no longer the case as so many people have become victims to crimes, every, everything from armed robberies to just their cars being broken into. This crime wave has overwhelmingly impacted low-income people in the flatlands of Oakland who are majority non-white. Um, those neighborhoods have been the most besieged by this crime wave. So those are the folks who are suffering, and those are the folks who the NAACP is speaking out, out on behalf of and saying to those uh, more affluent middle-class people in the hills, as well as working-class people in other parts of the city, um, you know, we need you to speak out along with us. Because a lot of folks in those low-income uh, quote-unquote black and brown communities have been speaking out about this for for quite a while. Right. So we just need, they're wanting to get this message out there more loudly, more clearly to yes. try and affect some change. Yes. All right. Great to speak with you on this, Leighton Woodhouse, journalist, documentary filmmaker, and co-founder of Public. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Coming up, companies are trying to hire people who are very agreeable. New research shows this character trait makes good team members. Why is that and what other traits are important? And in collegiate sports, one conference's loss is another's gain. We'll look at the latest in conference realignment when we return. Job seekers, take note. New research shows that employees who are more agreeable make better teammates. It's a trait that hiring managers are seeking right now. Why are they looking for agreeableness and what other traits are they looking at? NTD's Colin Fredrickson has more. Hiring managers are looking for people who are more agreeable. A recent study found a high positive correlation between agreeableness and team performance. People who are more agreeable are more likely to cooperate and compromise with their teammates. Those with higher agreeableness, you know, they're more compassionate, uh, they're more trusting, they're, they're more eager to help others. Yeah. And those with lower agreeableness, you know, more competitive and skeptical. Psychologist Ryan Warner says highly competitive people don't necessarily make great team members. They can make the environment less inviting, and trust also becomes an issue. Agreeableness is one of the big five personality traits. Openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. This is a widely accepted framework that's used to assess differences in personality. While we're going through the screening and the vetting process, uh, we have several tests that we run, as well as we have in-house psychologists that run interviews in order to look for uh, key traits. Raquel Gomez is the CEO of Staffy, a firm that evaluates job seekers. She says the big five personality traits are a key metric for evaluating potential hires. The key traits she looks for, conscientiousness. This is very important. This is a person's level of discipline, organization, and reliability. Extroversion, for the confidence to speak up. And meanwhile, she always looks for low levels of neuroticism. 
This generally refers to a person's emotional stability. People that having high neuroticism is, you know, overly exaggerating on things that happen that are not going the way they are expected, right? So overly dramatizing. The recent study also found that neuroticism decreases team performance. It says high neuroticism leads to anxiety and fear, which can impair cognitive functioning. People can learn more about where they fit in in the Big Five personality traits by taking online assessments, doing self-reflection, or seeking feedback from others. Experts highly advise asking the people around you because they can give the best feedback about your personality. Colin Fredrickson, NTD News. And now for your sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with a major college conference on the brink. That's right, Steph. Colorado is now the latest team to flee the Pac-12. The university announced yesterday they're headed back to the Big 12, where they were previously a founding member back in 1996, and have relationships with some existing members that date back to the 1940s when they were part of the Big 7 and later Big 8. The move is the latest blow to the Pac-12, which is steel reeling from the announced losses of USC and UCLA last summer to the Big 10. Now, the move by Colorado will coincide with the end of the Pac-12's television deal, mirroring the timing of the moves by UCLA and USC, meaning they won't have to pay an exit fee. It comes at a time when the Pac-12 has been slow in finding a suitable TV deal beyond next season. The move could also mark the latest in a line of dominoes to fall for the Conference of Champions, much like what happened to the Big East more than a decade ago. As such, ESPN is reporting that the Big 12 which with the addition of Colorado and defections of Texas and Oklahoma after the season will be at 13 teams, met Friday and are now looking to add a 14th member, though no specific names were mentioned. And in NFL news, free agent running back Dalvin Cook said on the NFL Network's Good Morning Football that he was visiting the New York Jets on Sunday and sounded optimistic that a deal would happen. Said the six-year veteran, quote, I think we're in a position of, you know, a team that's building something special, and I want to be part of something special as a player. I want to add to whatever they've got going on. The 27-year-old Cook was released by Minnesota on June 8, despite four straight Pro Bowl selections. And for your sports viewing schedule tonight, a full slate of baseball games, including Shohei Otani's LA Angels, who've won eight of their last nine to jump back into the playoff race. They play at Toronto. And that's it for your sports news today. Steph, back to you. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox. Good night.